Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers and really anyone who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, climate activism and a whole host of other issues. So if you've been listening from the start, you'll know all about the Coffee Connection, but if you don't, please head over to our Instagram page, Coffee with Conservationists. There's a post over there explaining it all in detail. Today, we're doing things a little differently. When talking to my guest about the Coffee Connection, she told me about the coffee she was drinking. So in this episode, I'll be talking about a Canadian company called Salt Spring Coffee. As usual, at the end of the episode, I'll be telling you who they are, how you can support them, and why they're great for people and planet. This week, I sat down with Eleanor Jean, Canadian documentary filmmaker, content creator, photographer, writer, and speaker. Her work mostly focuses on conservation and reconnecting with the wild, so we spoke about her film and not-for-profit co-extinction, the importance of storytelling in conservation, and the plight of the orcas of the Pacific Northwest ecosystem. Hi, Eleanor. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. So we're going to start it off by getting to know you a bit. Uh, Could you tell us about yourself, how you first got into conservation and filmmaking? Yeah, so uh, my name is Eleanor, of course. (laughs) And um, I got into conservation, I guess, when I was really little. I think that would be the story that for, for most people, you know, who are working in conservation, it was really something that I started taking an interest in when I was a kid because you know my dad took me out camping and he worked at a zoo so I was introduced to wildlife so it's always been something you know I was part of the environmental clubs when I was in high school and whatnot and I think it's important to touch on that because um, you know I think conservation education for children is so important and getting kids out into nature so that they can have an, an understanding and appreciation and then you know they'll carry it through life. Uh, but for me, I actually studied engineering, and um, it was a bit of a detour, but, you know, life kind of takes you in all kinds of directions until you finally figure out which direction you want to go on, go in, like, uh, you know, into the foreseeable future. So for me, I, I studied engineering, and then after school, I started up this um, clothing company called One Species, and the objective was to make conservation mainstream so I wanted to target an audience that you know wasn't wasn't super into the conservation space or environmental space I didn't necessarily want to preach to the choir so I wanted to create a clothing company to be kind of a communication liaison for endangered wildlife so we were partnering with conservation organizations on the ground that were doing work with uh, specific endangered species so at the time we had manatees and spider monkeys and then also killer whales um and we had ambassadors around the world that were kind of representing the clothing and the clothing was designed after these endangered species and then of course part of the proceeds um from the sales went towards uh, protecting those endangered species so it went to w- towards the organizations working to protect them and that was really it started off as kind of a passion project and um you know, I kind of was just following a thread of an, of interest and idea, and then that actually is what sparked um, where where what I'm doing today and what I'm going to be doing into the foreseeable future. So um, that film, sorry, that 
clothing project and ended up taking me to the west coast of Canada where I learned about an endangered species of killer whale called the southern resident killer whale um, because we were doing a clothing collection around them. And when I was there on the ground and I saw what was happening, um, I'm Canadian, so I saw what was happening in my in my own backyard, essentially, in my own country. And I saw how the killer whale was kind of indicating the greater health of the, the whole ecosystem, the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I took an interest in telling that story and doing it more justice. So I started working on a documentary film project um, about the southern resident killer whales, which has been something I've been working on for a number of years now. It's a full feature film. Uh, we're going to be finishing it up this year. And it's also got a not-for-profit uh, attached to it called Coextinction, which is all about um, not just protecting the southern resident killer whales, but the entire Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, we also talk about indigenous rights and, uh, you know, we're looking at protecting the salmon and all of the other species connected to these killer whales. So that's really where I'm at right now. It's definitely, you know, not like a straight path forward. And I think it's just important to, to, I don't know, to talk about that and be honest about it. And, um, the clothing company is not something that I've been working on anymore, just to like touch on that. Um, largely because I just, kind of realize that people don't really need more stuff instead they just need to Mm. um you know get out there and do something so um we can go out and inspire people to get out and do something you know without having to encourage that materialistic consumer mindset you know even when the clothing is made as sustainably as possible it's still you're just creating and endorsing this consumer um society that we live in so I kind of reeled back there and I'm much more focused on media and conservation so filmmaking and and conservation yeah yeah that's uh that's actually really great you've answered two questions I had in the first question which is really cool um because I was going to ask you about the Kirk Extinction and your brand as well uh separately so it's good you've rounded that all up really nicely um so about orca uh, a lot of people know them as killer whales what's so special to you so what drew what first made you want to work with them and fight to protect them specifically as a species yeah that's such a great question um and it's multi-layered it's it's multifaceted for me um Orcas are incredible species. I think a lot of people are aware of that now. It wasn't an awareness, let's say, like 60 years ago so much. They were actually something that was more feared. And then um, there was a history of them being, you know, the first one was captured. And initially it was supposed to be killed to be put in a museum. It's called, the killer whale's name was Moby Doll. And it was supposed to be uh, killed and then put in a museum so people could see the skeleton but it ended up surviving this whole traumatic event of uh, capture where they actually speared it from land and, um, and it survived and they pulled it all the way back to Vancouver uh, with them. Um, they were out in the Gulf Islands, so many, many, many kilometers away. And the killer whale was kind of put in this pen and it didn't eat for a while. They thought it was going to die, but then it started eating fish and people came from all over the world to see it. And they realized that killer whales have these strong, intelligent personalities and they're actually kind of playful and friendly, kind of like dogs in a way, which really took people by surprise. Um, so yeah, killer whales are uh, now a beloved species and that kind of was part of my initial interest in them was 
Um, you know, they're so well researched now and so well beloved. Um, they're so charismatic as a species. Um, so I wanted to learn more about them um, because of this, just this global love and perception. And um, yeah, they really, they really do stand out uh, also as a species, um, largely because of their intelligence. You know, they have these, uh, and their emotional intelligence, especially. We know them to be um, incredibly uh, empathetic and uh, emotionally intelligent in that they all are, you know, with their families their entire lives, and they have uh, distinct languages amongst their paws, this distinct dialects, um, and, um, yeah, they know each other uh, all you know, individually quite well, and they each have personalities from all of the observations we've been making. So, um, you know, there's, you know, a, a lot of scientists will theorize that they're more uh, empathetic than, than we are. They're more emotionally intelligent than we are um, in in some ways. So, yeah, so that's, I mean, orcas are incredible, uh, and, you know, they're big, <laughs> and they... Um, big beautiful creatures so when you see them out in the wild for the first time like you know when you or even in captivity unfortunately but you know there's nothing really that compares to seeing them out in their natural habitat but when you see them um it really takes your breath away like you know big megafauna you know you see a you see a whale or you see a gorilla or a buffalo and like just these big megafauna really have the capacity to just take your breath away completely and orcas absolutely do that you know when they come up to surface and so um when I saw them for the first time in the west coast I definitely had that experience growing up I wasn't living on the ocean so it was my first time uh being out on the ocean and seeing them and yeah I was absolutely uh bewildered by them so and then on top of that I guess I would have to say I've I've taken a strong interest in trying to understand just how things are interconnected. I mean, I think that is the underlying story of so many of the issues that we face in the world today, and um, especially in the you know when you're when you're interested in conservation work, you know everything is uh, connected and impacted by you know the different moving parts within an ecosystem and. Um, and how we're connected to the ecosystem as well as, as humans. And so um, I saw the killer whales uh, as as an indicator species, you know, and they're in that bay. They are indicator species, like, you know, from a scientific standpoint, but, um, you know, also from, like, a cultural or more spiritual standpoint, you know, there are these animals that are revered on the West Coast and have, or they're iconic, you know, they have been for hundreds and hundreds of years um, by the First Nations people here, and you know, they're telling a story of the coast. And so if they were to go extinct, um, not only would that be tragic, but it's also telling us that there's some serious issues. Um, there's some serious, you know, health issues that we have to address in the, on the West Coast. So um, I thought that was very compelling. And um, I wanted to learn more about it, basically, and, and tell that story. Yeah, they've always been a favourite animal of mine. I think, funnily enough, uh, the film Free Willy, was a big, yeah. a, one of my favourite films as a kid. And growing up, it's interesting how I've looked back on it now. Actually, there's um, there was a, a filmmaker in the UK who wrote a blog about it being a piece of conservation activism quite recently, quite sort of far ahead of its time. Um, and that obviously had an impact because I've always wanted to work with them, always wanted to 
protect them. So it's really great to hear that there's all these people and organisations like yourself out there doing the work. And so as something that's really connected, as you mentioned already, to the future of both the orca and really the the whole ecosystem around the Pacific Northwest is salmon. Um, so for anyone listening who either eats salmon or sort of, yeah, it either eats salmon now, why is it a problem? And if you have to eat salmon, sort of, could you tell us why it's so important to be really careful where you get it from? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And it's one of the major layers of the story that we've been uncovering and that we're going to be telling through co-extinction and um, campaigning on through our not-for-profit work as well. And so in relation to the killer whales, um, killer whale species, they eat all kinds of different things. In the Pacific Northwest, we have three different main species that, uh, you know, one will eat uh, mammals. Those are the transients. And um, so they might eat seals, for example. And then another is uh, called offshore and they'll eat squids and sharks. And then you have the residents and the residents eat specifically salmon. Um, specifically fish, uh, but it's like 93%, some very high percentage of their diet is made up of Chinook salmon, which is one of the larger um, species of salmon, and also one of the more endangered species of salmon um, here in the Pacific Northwest. So there's, uh, of the 22 studied Chinook populations um, here in in the Pacific Northwest, like on the Canadian side, there's like 12 of them are um, either endangered or uh, approaching endangerment. So we definitely have a big issue with salmon populations not doing very well here and not just Chinook salmon populations. Um, Many salmon uh, runs are collapsing. So, you know, salmon will uh, come down from, they're born on land, they're born in the rivers, and then they make their way to the ocean and they spend the majority of their lives in the ocean. And then they come back to breed or they come back to spawn um, in the late summer or fall um, and they'll go up the same river that they were born Uh, and so those are the salmon runs and what we what we're seeing is just fewer and fewer salmon returning every year in those salmon runs to the point where you know I was um, you know deep in this like remote beautiful wild uh, northern area kind of 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 uh, well, northern area of British Columbia, and um, where usually you would be seeing salmon runs of in the tens of thousands, and um, at any time you'd see that the river would just be full of salmon, and and you know we spotted two to three salmon in these pools. So, so salmon are are dying dying off, and and it's not just happening in the Pacific Northwest. I have I would have to mention as well. I mean, this is something that's being seen all over the world, especially where there's more densely populated areas. So like we've seen it in Norway and Scotland and whatnot, but I can't speak to that as well as um, what's happening here. Um, and it's happening for a number of different reasons. So we, we do explore this in, in co-extinction. It's a major aspect of what we look at are why are the salmon populations doing so poorly? Um, and of course, how can we help restore them? Because salmon are kind of like, the lifeblood of uh, any coastal ecosystem. They they bring nutrients up, you know, from the ocean um, and down from the rivers as well. So um, they're this major connection, and they feed so many different um, 
creatures in the in the greater ecosystem as well. So you know, we were seeing starving grizzly bears here, not just starving orcas, because um, I'm just closing my window there. <laughs> um, yeah. So with the salmon, there's a number of different reasons why they're in decline, and the major ones that we've found on the west coast here are. Uh, climate change definitely is playing a significant role because they are temperature-sensitive species. So our dependency on on oil and our addiction to oil is, is a problem. Um, we're also seeing issues with habitat destruction. So a major uh, there's major dams along a lot of the major rivers that run inland. And um, as you can imagine, it makes it pretty difficult for salmon to um, go up and spawn and do what they need to do and return to the ocean. Um mm. And then not just dams, but all kinds of different habitat destruction on smaller levels and these small streams, you know, where there's development for houses or whatever. Um, and then also we've seen the rise of disease um, within wild salmon populations due to uh, fish farms. And fish farms are, um, as some people like to say, they're, they're called toxic fish factories over here on the West Coast because yeah, they, um, yeah, they just... They're like any industrial, agricultural, you know, process where you have, um, you know, a densely populated, uh, you know, whatever the commodity it is that you're that you're that you're creating. So whether it be beef or a chicken or whatever, in this case, it's it's salmon, and um, they've taken a uh, actually Atlantic salmon, which aren't native to here, and they keep them in open water pens, and um, of course that breeds disease and viruses and the pens are open water so they uh, these viruses and sea lice will get out into the wild fish populations and these fish are already being bombarded with these other issues of you know climate uh issues and overfishing as well as another major issue so yeah just to touch on them but without being too long-winded just to finish the question so as a consumer um you know we have a major opportunity to help uh restore these salmon populations by just choosing not to eat salmon um and it's it's funny enough it's kind of a it's an idea that's not often well received i've found which is weird because you know we're in the midst of this big like vegetarian and vegan movement but a lot of times people will kind of you know uh not include fish and uh that's a problem especially because our oceans are just you know frankly being so overfished and we don't have control over the fishing that's happening um for the most part it's so poorly regulated and we don't know you know what we're pulling up out of the water there's all of this bycatch and we don't know um you know what the conditions of the various uh runs or population of whatever it is that we're fishing actually how how they're actually doing because the ocean is just kind of you know once you go beneath that thin blue line it's so hard to understand what's really really happening so um, it's kind of like a, a free-for-all, and with salmon, it's, um, you know, it's a similar situation, and I think that really the best way to just deal with it outside of improving regulations is um, encouraging consumers to place less demand on on the market, uh, because as long as the demand is there, there will be people who will, who will fight to, to supply. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, because I've been um, sort of caught up in this whole moral debate for a while with a lot of my friends a lot of my peers um i haven't eaten meat for or land-based meat for four years now 
Um, but I have been eating a bit of fish because I usually will, I go to Cornwall a lot and I'll either catch it myself, like I've always done, or I'll know exactly how it's been caught and where it's come from. Um, but it's always been a big debate about kind of a lot of people don't, talking to a lot of other vegetarians or a lot of other pescatarians who still eat fish, um, there's less of a sentience attached to fish as there is to other animals. Like there's people who have fished all their life and just see it as a way of life. And then there's other people, there's those same people who won't eat venison because they're not prepared to go and like shoot their own deer. And they're, yeah. they're, so there's there's that whole thing, and I think for a big predator fish like uh, tuna and salmon, it's really important that we get that message across. I really try my hardest to source it like correctly and make sure it's wild, which in the UK is very hard to do because our food standards are not great in terms of packaging is has not always been a hundred percent truthful. Um, so it's a big debate and I'm really glad that we can, you, you're getting that message out there and you're, you're pushing for that because as you said, there is a big movement around vegetarianism, veganism, and then not including fish in that. And the health of our oceans is so intrinsically linked to the health of the rest of the ecosystems. Um, I, I, it's really good. You mentioned, uh, bears actually, I was talking to, an Alaskan bear guide and conservationist about the mine that's going on on the pebble mine at the minute uh, that's happening oh, yeah. in Alaska. So that was, it's really interesting to get a perspective on from the point of view of the bears and those industries and subsistence fisheries and also orca as well. Yeah, it's all, it's all connected a hundred percent. So as a student moving into sort of wildlife photography and, and the film industry, I'm really interested in the whole role audiovisual work plays in global conservation. Uh, as a documentary filmmaker, what's your take on that? How important do you think this work that we do is to uh, actual conservation and actual change in policy and, and areas like that? Yeah, yeah, another great question. I mean, obviously I'm very biased because this, this is the work that I've chosen to yeah. do and that just fills me and um, I definitely think that uh, you know, whatever you choose to do, um, it plays a role in the greater, you know, so every, once again, everything's interconnected. And I like to think of society almost like a beehive where everyone has their own specific roles that are integral to keeping things moving forward, as long as you're making an effort to contribute. Um, so, you know, there's all different ways that you can get involved in conservation work. And it might not necessarily, you know, media might, might not be it and that's awesome and um you know media work is though i think very important storytelling specifically because you know storytelling you know has been with us since the very beginning of the evolution of our minds is how they were how how we know them to work today right and that we perceive the whole world as essentially a collection of stories um it makes up our belief systems and our belief systems uh dictate the actions uh, that we choose to take in the world and how we behave and, and, you know, who we associate with and, and everything. So, you know, stories are at the absolute, um, foundation of who we are and what we do and how we move forward, um, as individuals and as a collective. So, um, I think that playing really what I want to do in, in, in being a storyteller is playing a role in, in hopefully pushing people and, um, 
the right direction. And obviously, we're seeing massive uh, a massive ecological crisis right now, and and that to me is one of the biggest issues that we face. And and I think that engaging people in that. Um, it's not just about telling them that there's a problem, but really it's about connecting them over, you know, connecting them emotionally. And the only way to connect someone emotionally is to is to give them a story, you know, to go take them through a story. You can't just, you know, deliver facts and expect people to, to connect with it. I mean, even better is giving them an experience. But in a lot of ways, you know, a story is, you know, whether it's conveyed through a, a novel or uh, through film and in my case, uh, where you're where, where you're sitting down and you're watching it, obviously you're not being taken to a place to um, actually experience what's happening in in the story in real life. But um, it's pretty much as as close as you can get, and that's how we've conveyed information since you know the days when we were sitting around fires, right? Because if we if we had to experience everything, um, you know, then you know information wouldn't you know translate fast enough and I think that's what's made us so successful as a as a species on on an aside so that's kind of an interesting thing about stories you know they really do dictate um how we behave in the world so effective stories um can completely change the world and we've seen that with um documentaries like one of my favorite conservation documentaries that really influenced me was shark water um by Mm. rob stewart yeah and um yeah, that transformed the world in that, you know, it, it transforms people's perspective around sharks. And the interesting thing about that film is, uh, um, from what I heard, is uh, because I have a few people who, who worked with, uh, that I know that who worked with Rob closely on that and whatnot, and just, is just that uh, when that film came out, there was actually a lot of people in the conservation space who had been doing work on sharks and advocating for sharks for decades before you know, Rob, this young guy came in and made this film and they were kind of uh, annoyed as, as you would be if you spent your whole life and then this kid comes in and, you know, he, you know, places his, himself as the hero in the story and like, um, you know, he, you know, he doesn't have the same experience or background or anything, but, you know, he was just a guy who took in a, an interest and then uh, took action and, and it's really the story that is, is what propelled that whole shark finning movement but also this change in perception around sharks and even you know ocean conservation around the world and uh, you know i think people we, we hadn't seen something so successful as that despite all of the decades of conservation research that had been done before him just because that story it took off it was so compelling right um and i think even you know you see with these massive movements that we've seen in the past number of years which have been unprecedented like with the climate crisis uh, you know, and the and the and Greta Thunberg kind of leading that story in in revolution, right? So she's kind of the, the you know what the media has latched onto, and she's an amazing communicator as well, and she's really compelled people through her stories and, and um, the story of her kind of emerging as an as an icon and leading those movements. And uh, similarly, even now with the Black Lives Black Lives Matter movements you know, the power of social media and media, it's, it all really comes down to media. And, um, you know, the story of George Floyd, like has really, really shaken people to the core. And, um, it's, uh, it's stories that transform the world. Um, you know, they're the first, I think really the first, the first step, um, towards change. So yeah, that's kind of the big picture. Why, 
for me why I love storytelling and um, why I'm so obsessed with filmmaking and whatnot now in the media world. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that answered it really well because I think that definitely looking in... This wasn't initially a career that I'm... I'm going into it in a very, uh, I'd say, unorthodox way because a lot of filmmakers uh, don't... Or wildlife filmmakers and wildlife photographers don't study that specific subject. Um, But I'm about to start an undergraduate degree in marine and natural history photography. So it's a very kind of unique, specific way of looking at it. But before going, sort of putting my application and everything, I've been talking, uh, doing a lot of research and I was talking to a lot of people who I knew in the industry and who've worked in it for years. And definitely with like media, it's crazy how kind of one moment or one sort of, as you said, social media or a big audience um, can propel these stories and kind of highlight what's been going on for decades uh like the one segment in the last episode of blue planet 2 that uh, made everyone kind of aware or a lot of people aware about the problem of plastics um and then you kind of got those people who have been telling people about the dangers of plastics and plastic pollution in our oceans for for years mm-hmm. and not really getting listened to until Attenborough made a program about it and everyone like billions of people watched it or as you mentioned Greta Thunberg the fact that she's got such a wide audience on social media um and the media have kind of latched onto her as this this figurehead and that's kind of um pushed into the spotlight all the other activists and all the other young people that have been fighting for change for decades like um people trying to block the Dakota Access Pipeline and people campaigning for Indigenous rights and, you know, these people have been doing their work for for years and years without social media and without film. Um, And this kind of whole storm in the last sort of 10, 15 years has really, yeah, pushed it all into the the spotlight, I guess. Um, And you've, you've actually answered pretty much all of my questions i had three others that you've answered perfectly within other questions um, which is really great <laughs> before we finish off we're just going to do a little quick fire round so first off what's your favorite animal the wolf i'm just gonna say that because it's been my childhood favorite animal where is a place you like to go and connect with nature somewhere you feel really at home in the wilderness? Uh, where I live, honestly. I'm, I'm really lucky to live in an incredible place uh, that's very embedded in the natural environment. Um, you don't have to go far. So I'm in Tofino. I'm on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Do you have a conservation hero? Uh, probably the late Rob Stewart, just because he influenced me so much through his uh, Shark Water and films, his book, Revolution. And then also he was just, you know, such a go-getter as an activist as well. Um, I really think he had his head on straight and just his eyes forward. So very inspiring guy. And last off, how do you take your coffee? Uh, well, I'm drinking it right now. And uh, I've got some oat milk in there and that's about it so great i think we'll wrap it up there but before we finish i just want to ask where can people find you uh what are your social media online handles both for you as a filmmaker and all the projects you're involved with yeah of course so uh 
So you can find me um, online at Elena.Jean or at Elena Jean. Uh, I'm mostly on Instagram right now. Uh, I've got a website, elenagene.com, and then in the future I'll be more so on YouTube. Hopefully not TikTok, but my, that might end up happening. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you can also find uh, Coextinction at Coextinction Film on Instagram and Twitter, uh, YouTube as well, and our website is Coextinction Film, www.coextinctionfilm.com. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that's about it. Everything else links to everything else, too. So you'll see all the other stuff that I'm working on and Co-Extinction is working on as well. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. I'll link everything down below. And I really look forward to hearing and seeing more of your work in the future. Yeah, thanks so much, George. This was fun. Thanks again to Elena for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to her social media, website and the main co-extinction site will be in the description down below. So I said that today we're featuring a coffee from Salt Spring Coffee. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to taste this coffee myself, but Eleanor was drinking it during our chat and I decided to have a look at their website and find out more. Salt Spring really impressed me, first of all, by being a certified B Corporation. The B Corp label means your company is certified for incredibly high standards of sustainability, accountability and transparency. Soul Spring Coffee is also fair trade, organic and a member of 1% of the planet, meaning they donate 1% of their annual profits to environmental not-for-profits around the world. All the information will, as ever, be in the description. I'd highly recommend checking out the sustainability section on their website, as it's full of interesting data and info on their carbon footprint and waste production as a company. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. So tune in on the 5th of September to hear episode 7, where we talk with intersectional climate activist, educator and mental health advocate, Tori Choi. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman jones and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast.